Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. In the winter quarter, I always want to take time to go through a book of the Old Testament, and um, Leviticus is the place where all of the kind of ritual aspects of Old Testament Israel and Judaism are all explained in depth, and it's one of the places where you might be tempted to look and see, uh, think, that doesn't have anything to teach me. I can learn, uh, and it's interesting to talk about the stories of Jesus or to talk about Paul's letters, um, but actually... The way the New Testament talks about Leviticus and the Old Testament in general, but especially these rituals, is it it calls them um, shadows and shapes and teachers. Um, That in these rituals, these are physical realities. This is essentially theater to teach you about deeper realities about God. So that these were rituals that were played out in front of people, and people played out participating in them. And it's not because the rituals actually achieved what they did, uh, what, what they claimed, but at rather, and even this language is in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and the prophets, that like, the blood of lamb and ghost does not make you right before God. What they did is they taught you about the true lamb of God who would. So it's another way of actually exploring who Jesus is. That is the New Testament's understanding of Leviticus. And what we're going to talk about tonight is something... Uh, that might feel unfamiliar to you. It might be language you're familiar with, but a concept that you don't feel like you understand. And it's the priesthood. And what happens in Leviticus 8 is um, the ceremony that sets these people apart uh, within Israel, um, uh, Aaron and his sons, to be priests. And we're going to talk about this idea of what a priest is. And we're going to pull from a couple of different places in Scripture. And here's my contention, what I hope you see is that even though that word priest, that idea of priesthood might sound really archaic and really foreign, the writer of Hebrews would contend with you that actually an understanding of the priesthood of Jesus, the seeing how Jesus is the great high priest, is maybe the most practical wisdom you can have to make it in life. The book of Hebrews is written to people who are struggling to make it. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, if you get this priesthood thing, It is what you need to get through tomorrow. Uh, So I'm going to read a little bit from Exodus that talks about the priesthood, a little bit from Leviticus, a little bit from Hebrews, and we're going to talk about it. So these are uh, instructions in Exodus 28 about what the priests would wear. Again, I kind of want to, I hope that you feel served by us talking about some of the weird things in the Old Testament. We're doing that intentionally. And they shall make the ephod of gold of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen skillfully worked. So an ephod is is this big kind of vest that they will wear. And it shall have two shoulder pieces attached attached to its two edges so that it will be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like, a, like it and be of one piece with it, gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Again, this is supposed to feel exotic and luxurious. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in in the order of their birth. He's talking about the twelve tribes of Israel. That would be like writing the fifty states of the United States. 
Um, as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of fine gold filigree. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Now, Exodus 28 describes what the priests would wear. Leviticus 8 describes the priests kind of being set apart for their office, their ordination or their consecration. Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing the Lord has commanded to be done. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Put the coat on him, tied the sash around his waist. Talking about the clothes we just described. Clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he, and he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bulls of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the bull of the sin offering. This is from Hebrews, reflecting on the office of priesthood. When it says the former priests, it's talking about ones we just read about. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we consider something that feels foreign and bizarre and not relevant to what we have to contend with in our life tonight or tomorrow inside of us or outside of us in the world, I pray that you would teach us about the office of priest, that we would find that it is good news, that it is not something foreign to us, but it is what we need to make it. So be with us and teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. So to begin to talk about this, we have to talk about how our life experience connects with this. And to do that, I want you to consider this phenomenon, that we are constantly giving an account for ourselves. That that's actually something, one of the most consistent activities we do. It's kind of so consistent um, that even if you think of yourself as someone like, I don't do that, I'm fiercely independent, then what that means is that you're constantly giving an account of yourself to yourself. That's what an independent person or an autonomous person does. does. Um, and the reality is, of course, as we're giving an account of ourselves right, to our friends, to our potential employers, to potential lovers, to social uh, groups, but even to ourselves, what's interesting about giving an account to ourselves is actually, usually, we are the least compassionate and least giving people to ourselves. And, uh, and, and the Bible uses a word often in several different places, a word to present. And it talks about this. It talks about presenting yourself, presenting your offerings or your sacrifices, presenting your life. And I want to contend for a moment that to, to be human is to be made for presenting. And the way you actually get a sense of self is by the act of presenting what you have made of yourself, the sum total of your life up until this point, to some audience. All right? To ask someone out on a date is to present yourself to an audience. To apply for a job is to present yourself to an audience. To engage in a conversation, that simple act, is a presentation of self to someone else. Will you accept me? Can we enter into friendly conversation? To open up is to present yourself. To greet someone is to present yourself. To give an account of something about you to an audience. It's actually the main way you derive meaning and purpose. 
maybe the only way we really derive meaning and purpose. But here's the problem, is that we are all riddled with the sense that in a lot of different settings we're not quite as presentable as we wish we were. And that shows up in our lives in a lot of different ways, that reality that we know we could be more presentable. Shows up in our anxiety and our insecurity, right? Why? This feeling that I'm not enough. I'm not enough. So much of our anxiety and insecurity rises from feeling like what I'm presenting is not a strong enough case. Uh, It shows up in our workaholism, right? I still need a little bit more to do. A little bit more to do. It shows up in our giving up, right? In despair. I can't take it anymore. I can't make any more of myself. Sometimes we quit. Right? It shows up in our jealousies and our envies of others. They're making a better case. Their presentation is better. Right? It shows up in our shame and our guilt. I'm not worthy. It shows up in our religious conceptions of how we think God thinks of us. God, God won't give me the good things because I haven't made a good enough case that I'm the kind of person that he would give good things to. So that's why things aren't working out for me. And presenting an account for ourselves is one of the most lonely activities. When you really become aware of it and realize that that's what you're doing most of the time, if you've ever sent in a job application to a company that you know nothing about and know no one that works at, it's a really lonely feeling, right? You're like, here's all I got, just me. Then, when you find out that there's someone there who can speak for you, it changes the equation dramatically. And what... Jesus has to teach us tonight is you are never supposed to go alone. And he's not talking about friendship. It's not about someone going with you. The idea of a priest is how God wants you to understand that he has provided an advocate to go with and for you. And that's something totally different. It's much better than friendship. So let's talk about for a moment the need for a priest and how it begins to kind of speak into that reality that we live in about presenting ourselves and giving an account for ourselves. What a priest does is a priest presents, uh, represents the people to God and represents God to the people. He's called a mediator. He represents the people to God and he represents God to the people. And this idea is actually not that foreign to us at all. It's actually that when you say network and you talk about networking, that's priestly activity. Actually, it's, compl- it's exactly what priestly activity is. Because what networking is, is you're over here and there's someone over here you want to get to know, but you know you don't have the right or the access or the privilege to them. So you have to find someone between y'all who knows you well enough and, know- and has capital with them well enough to connect the two of you. Networking is by definition priestly activity. Okay, so this is not news. This is not something we can't understand. You can see what happens is for this, for this person to connect the two of you, they have to have the priest, the networker, has to have two things. They have to have identity and knowledge of you, identity with you and knowledge of you. They have to be able to speak well because they know you. And then they also have to have to capital with this person, right? You, you've experienced this if you've ever ask someone to write a recommendation for you, which is a priestly activity, and they don't know you, you realize this is really weird. They don't know how to represent me. I don't know what to do, right? If you ask someone to speak for you towards this third party, maybe it's a high-profile person, and they have no pull with that person, 
then you both look foolish, right? They have to have access, rights, and privilege to you and to this person. A priest has to have identity and credibility with both parties. Now, let's look at the text. Look at how the priests were dressed in Exodus 28. This ephod, this kind of religious dress, this, this uh, big vest had these stones on it. And on the stones are the 12 tribes of Israel. So he had actually had the 12 tribes of Israel written on stones on his shoulders and had the 12 tribes of Israel, the names written on stones on his chest. And he would wear these things. And what that means is that when he walks into this place that symbolized the presence of God, inside the tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies, it means that he represents Israel. He has a connection to these people, an identity with these people. And again, if you read Leviticus, the thing that I hope that we're always doing is trying to imagine not what this looked like in this room, but what this looked like 3,000 years ago in a peasant nomadic setting in the ancient Near East. Because imagine what the worshiper saw when he saw all of this wealth and in in the names of all of his people inscribed on this religious official going into this place that they called God's presence for them. Imagine, again, you don't have to even think very much about what would intuitively kind of dawn on their imagination. You would be standing there and you would be looking at this exotic and luxurious outfit and see, oh, he has our names all over his outfit, so he's going there for us to speak for us, to advocate for us, to do something on our behalf. He is us. He's one of us. He has credibility with us. But not only does he stand for us, Leviticus 8 tells us how the ordination or the consecration of the priests went. And in verse 14, a bull sacrifice is given. So actually, in verse 6, first, they're washed. Verse 14, a bull sacrifice is given. Actually, we didn't read it, but in verse 18, a ram sacrifice is offered for the priests. In verse 22, another ram sacrifice is offered for priests. Later in verse 28, there's a food offering offered for priests. Then in verse 30, they're actually sprinkled with blood and oil. And then they're told to wait for seven days, these are the priests, at the entrance of the tent of meeting and continue to offer sacrifices. It's a much more elaborate sacrificial ceremony to get the priests ready to go into God's presence. So again, if you're, imagine you're this nomadic Jewish people 3,000 years ago and you're watching this unfold over a week. He's wearing more wealth than you've ever had. Um, he has his names, the names of your people inscribed all over him. And for seven days, sacrifices are made to make him presentable for God's presence. Here's what I think you think in that setting. He is the most religious, devoted person ever I would love for him to talk to God on my behalf. Right? That's what you would think. He is the most religious person ever. Being a pastor, maybe you've experienced this or seen this before. Being a pastor, sometimes people are like, oh, will you pray for me? Because people think like, man, you just must be a really religious person, so your prayers probably count even more. Right? (laughs) They just count more because I'm an Alabama fan, not because I'm religious. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But right, that's what this setting is intended to convey. Like, whoa, He's way more religious than me. He's way cleaner than me. He's way more uh, outfitted than me. Yes, go talk to God on my behalf. That's what you would feel. That's what you would sense. He wore on his head a turban. And Exodus 28, 36 and 37 says, You'll make a plate of pure gold, engrave it on him, like the engraving on a signet, and you would engrave on it holy to the Lord, and you'll fasten it on the turban 
on their head. So this meant set apart for the Lord to the Lord. That means he belongs with the Lord as well. He has right and access and identity with the Lord. He has credibility with the Lord. His clothes and these ceremonies, what these things were, is they were theater. And you would keenly sense he is one of us, but he has right and access to a place that we don't, and he will go there for us. He's holy and he goes for me. They were to stand there and see this priest and look down, look down right, at their, at their muddy feet and their dirty clothes and look back up and say, yes, for us, go. You're the one to go for us. When we have an advocate, this is what's happening. You are now viewed and you are now received and you are now granted access and privilege based on who they are. Instead of looking at yourself, you no longer depend on your performance. You no longer depend on your skills. You no longer depend on your ability to make a case for yourself. You no longer depend on your eloquence or your knowledge or your sufficiency, moral or religious or otherwise, at all. Because now your case stands on their performance and on their eloquence and on their knowledge and on their skills and on their sufficiency. Your life is in and bound up with them and their skills and their rightness and their ability. And it has nothing to do anymore with your performance and your skills and your knowledge and your ability. The way one pastor said it is, in a sense, you are in your advocate. And when the judge looks at you, he doesn't look at you anymore. He looks at the one who is standing for you. This is a radically different way to go through life than to think that at all times you've got to make an account for yourself to any audience or else. To think that to the supreme audience, there's one who stands in for you. Are you tired of making a case for yourself? Do you know you can be free from that? You can be free from it tonight. You can actually go through Stanford free from that. Looking for a verdict, looking to pass scrutiny, looking to be accepted, looking hopefully to be found worthy, to be found to be someone who matters. Who is going to tell you that you matter? Who are you looking to to tell you that you matter? Why do you think they will tell you you will matter? What have you done about yourself that you think makes you worthy to hear them say you matter? When is the verdict coming? When do you expect it to come? What threshold do you need to get past, whether it's in your schoolwork or your moral life or your religious life or your social life, that you think then the verdict will come from somebody who will tell me I'll matter and there'll be rest for the world? Are you expecting it from yourself? Some of us look to ourselves, right? Are you expecting it from the world, from things around you? We all expected it from Stanford, right? You got into the most difficult educational institution the world has ever seen. You got the verdict. You got the highest educational verdict the world has ever been able to pass. The most exclusive club. But it didn't suffice, did it? That word was not enough, was it? You got the best educational word or verdict anyone's ever gotten. It wasn't enough, was it? What's it going to take? If not getting into Stanford, what is it going to take? 
Here's the thing. What we're looking for in all of this is a word from the Lord of creation. And a word from the Lord is the only thing that will heal you. And is the only thing that can silence all the accusations that stand against us. Because if you have a word from the Most High God, then what is an F at Stanford? An F. Not even a D or a C, an F. If you have a word from the Most High God, then what is missing out on the internship? What is missing out on the, on the bid? What is even missing out or, or having your shame exposed? Because if you have the highest word from the one who made the stars in heaven, go out tonight and look at the stars. That's important. I think ceilings are hampering our spiritual lives, personally. <laughs> I really mean that. It's not, that wasn't funny. It was funny. It was funny. <laughs> I do mean it. Then I got a little funny. If you have the highest word from the one who made the stars in heaven, from the king of creation and the lord of the universe, but, but how do you get this word? You don't get it by presenting yourself. We're not even getting the word in the mirror when we look back at ourselves. We're not even doing a good job there, and we have much lower standards. What we need is a priest, and that is good news. Have you ever experienced the relief of someone speaking for you when you thought no one would? Because this is what happens when you realize someone will speak from you. Relief washes over you. Anxiety, insecurity, perfectionism start to melt away. And your focus is no longer on your life's resume that you've been building and how you can fashion it and how you can twist it and how you can hide parts of it. And the reason why is because now you are... You're no longer simply as good as the case you can make for yourself. At this point, that's what we all think. Apart from Jesus, that's what we think. I'm as good as the case I can make for myself. No, now you're as good as your advocate. If they have credibility, the one who advocates for you, if the one who advocates for you has capital, if they have eloquence, if they are strong, if they belong, if they have pull, if they have influence, and your hope is in speaking that they speak for you, that's your hope. We don't just need a priest, we need the priests. Remember, Leviticus is giving us shadows and copies of heaven, heavenly, truer, deeper spiritual realities. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. The Bible is saying what they did didn't work. It was never intended to work. It was intended to teach. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Embedded in the ordination of the priest. So when you read, if you read more in Leviticus 8 9, it goes more extensively into that um, ritual. But embedded in that ordination is an admission. There's a key. There's something telling us something. There had to be sacrifices made for the priest to enter God's presence. And that was a key to tell us and to tell them even these high priests didn't truly belong. 
even they had to make a case for themselves over and over and over again. Built into the theater that they performed was sacrifice for the priests themselves, signaling they were insufficient for the work. The priestly office in Exodus and Leviticus was pointing forward and teaching us about the true high priest who speaks to God on your behalf, and that is His Son, Jesus. And Jesus didn't need sacrifices to prove that He belonged. And he offers something so much better. He pleads your case based on his sacrifice for you. Here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't look at the file for Britain and say, all right, God, I know this week Britain promised to do better. He made a little bit of headway. Uh, It didn't go quite how he planned didn't read his Bible as much, didn't pray as much, struggled on some things that he didn't want to keep struggling on, but still struggling with, lost his temper a few times. It was better than it could have been. And thinking that every week, as each week passes, and as each year passes, and as five years passes, and ten years passes, and fifteen years passes, Jesus kind of keeps making excuses for you. That's not what he does. He doesn't keep... Saying like, just be lenient with Britain because he's trying. It's not his case. It's not how he argues it. His plea is not for leniency for me or for you. That's exhausting. It's exhausting to think about and it's ultimately not comforting when you begin to project over your life. What does it mean that Jesus continually makes intercession for me? What does it mean? Does it mean he's going to ask for leniency? Like, okay... It's been five years now, God, and Britain, just give him one more week. It's been 10 years now. It's been 20. It's been 39 now. Like, but this next week, just take it easy on him. This next week. That's not his plea. He pleads for you on the merit of his life. The song we just sang said this. This is one of my favorite verses. Lo, the incarnate God ascended and pleads for you on the merit of his blood. So you venture on him, venture holy, and let no other trust intrude. Don't trust in anything else. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. He pleads the merit of his blood. His plea for you is on the merit of his blood, not your performance. And it's the only way you can ever receive a secure and final word on your whole person for all of eternity. He makes the once and final case for you based on his blood. And what Jesus says to justice, he says to justice, payment for Britain's sin, the way that I have brought ugly things into God's world, payment has to be made. But it's made by Christ's blood. Hebrews 10 talks about the priesthood of Jesus. It says, Every priest stands daily at his office, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ came and offered for all time a single sacrifice for the sins of the world, he then sat down at the right hand of God. The image of sitting down at the right hand of God is he's done, the case is made, and it's over. It's the perfect case. It's the perfect argument. It's watertight. It's unassailable. 
it is good news that God is a God of justice. Because when the payment is made in Christ's blood, then justice requires that you never feel rejection or fear or condemnation or the possibility of recrimination ever again because the same sin can never be paid for twice. And since Christ has paid it all and God is just, it means justice asks no more of you. This is Christ's intercession for you. This is another hymn line I love. Let us wonder how grace and justice, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace and Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with His blood has secured our way to God. To be a Christian is to be free from having to get an account of yourself ever again because Jesus has given an account for you. As your priest and as payment, this is the heart of the Christian faith to be found in Christ, to venture on Him and to venture holy in life and in prayer saying, I will no longer give account. Jesus, give account for me and I will rest. Three application that Lord willing, I hope happens for you tonight that you'll take hold of to tonight. And I made up words for these applications, so sorry. First of all, this one's terrifying. It makes you a little more Jesus-y. Sorry. Nobody wants to be more Jesus-y. It just doesn't sound cool. But if we get this, it makes you a little more Jesus-y. Because what you have now is a Christ-centered Christian understanding of who God is. A Christ-exalting understanding of who God is. Because how often do we let fear and insecurity and accusation filter in and around what we think about how things are between us and God? I don't love Him enough. I'm not committed enough. There are more committed people. I've done some of the things I promised I wouldn't do. I don't go to RUF or church enough. I don't know theology well enough. I don't do... And then fill in the blank of the more Christian thing that you're afraid that because you don't do or because you did do and promised you wouldn't, that you can't make a good case for yourself with God because you're not enough. How confident are you in your case? Here's the good news. You don't make your case before God. Jesus, your high priest, does. And He does not make the case based on your attributes or your contributions or your commitments or your failures. He makes your case based on His righteousness. So stop letting fear drive you to look at your case for yourself. Set your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. Satan is called the accuser. That's what his name means. Because what he loves to do is draw you back to the evidence against you. And say, ah, but look at your case. And the Christian says, you know what? Everything you say is probably true. and In fact, it might be worse. But you don't know how this case goes. Because justice has been satisfied, not by my religious commitment to be a better religious person, but by Jesus, my advocate, my high priest, my savior who spoke for me. Christians, stop looking at yourself, wondering if you've made a good enough case. When we are nasty to each other on the internet, to each other's faces, behind each other's backs, when we are nasty to people who don't believe in Jesus, when we are afraid of not being Christian enough, it is because that we have forgotten that Christ has made our case and it's airtight and justice smiles and asks no more because of who Jesus is for you.
makes you a little more Jesus-y. Sorry about that. It makes this word's even worse. It makes you a little more free e. I just want to go on the e thing. This is freedom. That's what we're talking about. It's freedom to no longer have to make a case, to stand in fear of your own resume and your own account, no longer wondering, have I done enough? Have I done too much? Will I be recriminated? Jesus had made your case. The conversation is over. Here's what this does for life for you tonight and tomorrow. Up until this point, life has been your proving ground. Prove that you can get into Stanford. Prove that you're cool enough. Prove that you're attractive enough. Prove that you're smart enough. Prove that you're moral enough. Prove that you're committed enough. Prove you're devoted to God enough. Prove that you're fast enough. Life is no longer a proving ground. Not one inch of your life, not one more moment of your life is a proving ground. This is what life is now for you. It is a playground. You can come back into life with the true story of a God who loves you, who sets you in a beautiful world, not to prove yourself, but actually to enjoy the pleasure of creating things in His world and loving those made in His image. It makes the world a playground instead of a proving ground, and that is freedom. That is true freedom. That is the freedom everyone longs for. And it's amazing how often students study and do things they don't want to do because they're still trying to give an account for themselves in this world because this world is still your proving ground. And in Christ, it no longer is. It is your playground. In Christ, you have the final word. Go play tomorrow. Class was supposed to be play. Coding was supposed to be play. I realize that sounds insane, but it's not because there's something wrong with coding, it's because there's something wrong with us. Last one. Makes you a little more Jesus-y, a little more free-y, and a little more priesty. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, Now you and Jesus, now you are a chosen race. You are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. If you're in Jesus, you're actually called now into a similar but not identical priestly role. You know the love of God in Jesus. You know the good news. You have access and joy and privilege and freedom and security. You should play tomorrow. And Peter is telling us that means we have the joy of that now being called into a priestly task of bringing Jesus to people and bringing people to Jesus. And you might feel, but not, but not me. I'm not that kind of person. My, my life says that I shouldn't do this because it's kind of a mess. I don't know how to do this. I'm insufficient for this task. But see, in thinking that, you're thinking about you again. This task is about pointing people to Jesus. And in reality, the very unacceptability of your life and the very unacceptability of my life gives you the capacity to say, I have nothing but Jesus. Don't look to me. Don't come to me. What I'm telling you is about who he is and who he's been for me. And if you fall short of the vision of God's, the priesthood of God's people, you've got to understand that's not a vision of you being a perfect Christian. It's the vision of a perfect high priest. Jesus showering grace on people like us. We, we could talk about this point for a while. I'll just close with this. I'll repeat something an old campus minister said years ago in terms of here's one possible application. It might be simpler than you think. Maybe it starts by just bringing somebody to RUF. 
bringing somebody to a small group, bringing somebody to church and saying, hey, what do you, what'd you think? And if you feel, but, but not me, because they knew who I am, I know who I am. The whole point is, yes, but not you, Christ. The not you-ness is what glorifies Christ. I'll close with this. Old Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, I am indeed not good enough, but he is, and I am in him. Let's pray.